All right. On April 30th of 2013, a guy named Robert Galbraith released a crime novel called Cuckoo's Calling. It barely sold 500 copies worldwide in the first couple months. Many store owners were taking off the shelves saying it was a waste of space. But then, news just two and a half months later, on July 14th, changed that. To see, it was announced that Galbraith was not really the author. It was actually someone named J.K. Rowling who wrote the book pseudonymously. However you say that. And from there, sales skyrocketed. You see, it quickly rose to the top of the bestseller lists. The mere mention of Rowling's name changed everything. Yet I'm not even sure 100% I know how to pronounce it. But the name itself changed everything. Now, some of you know me, like you've been a real estate broker for several companies and you never chose the name for any of them. In fact, right now you're currently doing a podcast with Pastor Travis that is literally nameless. And so you're probably like, even the people you know, you don't even re remember their names, so you make up new ones. So when a chapter, you know, comes and says, starts and begins with the same message, oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic or excellent is thy name in all the earth. We know what the premise of it is. And you're like, you are not the right person to be talking about names. That's probably true. But there's one thing you may know about me is I'm very precise about some things. A lot of times singulars and plurals. Uh, particularly words in scripture that come in singular or plural. Like you may have heard me accent the fact that the word fruit of the spirit ends with a T, not an S. Just, you know, if you're around me, just make sure to say fruit. Uh, or the, the book that we're doing our Wednesday night Bible study on, Revelation, also, no S at the end. So then you get to Psalms, which is weird because it's plural when you talk about the whole book, but it's 150 individual singular Psalms. So this is Psalm 8, and so that just throws it all out. And the problem with it being 150 distinct messages is we can't, when we're parachuting in, we can't look at the chapter before or the chapter after to see where we're at, what it's talking about. The only context we have is the heading, which those of you who have a heading in your Bible, some of your Bibles may not even have the heading. You may have no context, but it says, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. Now, I don't know about you, but Gittith is not in my vocabulary normally. I had to look it up. It's only mentioned in Psalms 8, 81, and 84, so only three times. And it's either an instrument or a musical style from the people of Gath, is what I've deduced. Now, all three of these psalms talk about the attributes of God, so we'll just assert that someone like Kiefer could probably write a tremendous tune, and we could all appreciate the music that would come along with this message. But what we do know something about is God's name. When he starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, the name he's talking about is Yahweh. If you're not familiar with that, that's the name that God gave himself in Exodus 3.14. And for those of you who have a Bible with you, keep a thumb. Don't leave Psalm 8 because we're going to 
definitely be reading it. But I figured I spent hours yesterday trying to finalize what I was going to say. And I said, you know, I can't do any better than the Bible, so I'll be reading a lot of verses. But Exodus 3.14, it says, And God said unto Moses, uh, Moses says, who should I say that you are? At the, what is, what is, when they ask me what is his name, what shall I say unto them? And then in verse 14, God says, I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. The name God gave himself in Exodus 3.14, the name that David in this psalm is saying is excellent or majestic over all the earth. The name it's referring to is I am. He is self-sustaining. He is the creator, the one who sustains the world and himself by his mere being. So, like I said, we're going to continue to read Psalm 8. So after it says, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens? Now, a lot of people read this and think metaphysically. You've got earth and above heavens and above that. It's, it's not so much talking about above the heavens in a metaphysical sense or just, you know, where we see, we look and we have the heavens. And if we could look even higher, we would see the glory of the name of God. It is talking about in power. The name of the Lord is greater than the heavens in power. How great is it? We'll continue to read with me. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies. If you were to say who is the weakest of the weak in our culture, in terms of humans, you'd say babies, right? They can't do anything. You know? If you ask a baby to bring you a cup of water, they're usually unsuccessful. If you ask a baby to lift, help you move the couch, not very helpful or any of the other mundane tasks that we do. Babies can't do it. And yet, if we were to say, what can they do? They can lift something, little toy blocks or puzzles or whatever. Normally, babies, their weakest skill is they can't really speak. And God is saying, not only am I choosing the weakest from among you to accomplish something, babes, but I'm also using their weakest attribute, which is speaking. Now, in this text, it says, out of the mouths hast thou ordained. It just says what's coming out of their mouth. It doesn't say what it is. So we're going to go to Matthew 21. You don't have to flip to all these verses with me if you don't want, but you certainly can. And in Matthew 21, this is about, uh, it's a Palm Sunday, if you remember that. This is where going into Jerusalem, Jesus is riding on a donkey and, and that's the story. And then they get to the part where you get to about verse 16. Because the chief priests and scribes in verse 15 saw the wonderful things that he did. And the children were crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the, the, the adults were displeased. And Jesus says to them, Hearest thou what these say? Uh, that's what they said. And Jesus said, sorry, Yea, have, ne- have ye never read, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. Jesus tells us what he's talking about here in that it's praise. And what does God do with this praise? If we continue to read Psalm 8, 
It says that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Now we, many of us may have a, a pleasant feeling when we hear the word avenger. We may think of people who are accomplishing great things on movies or whatever. And that is not what it means about avenger. It means the vengeful one, the one who is out to get people. And God is going to overcome them. And how? Through the praise of babies, infants. See, when we are children, we oftentimes think our parents are omnipotent, especially when we're younger, like babies. We know that no matter what kind of mess we get into, no matter who in the nursery messes with us, or even if we get a little older and we're playing on the playground and someone tries to start a fight with us, we are unimpeachable if we can just say the words, mommy or daddy. Now, maybe we're a little older and they just see us and we don't even have to say anything. And this is the comparison David is making in this psalm. We, he is pointing to a lifestyle where we are completely depending on God for every battle we get into. Some of you may be thinking of 2 Corinthians 12 where it says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, you may have a job and you may feel powerless in that job. You may feel as if nothing you do matters. You may literally feel your existence is moot. But God tells us that through your weakness, he will still the enemy and the avenger. This is true if you're in that job, if you're a student, if you're a child without the desired freedom you have, or even if you're running a business that you're to- and you're told you can't operate the business you- the way you want to. We serve a God who is so majestic that he has set his glory above the heavens. And while we have access to the God of the universe, no matter who you are, there is a reason why we feel insignificant. You say, why do we feel insignificant? Well, continue reading Psalm 8 with me. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. A lot of times, first of all, people think people in the Old Testament were dumb. They didn't really know how big the stars were. They may not have had the scientific outlooks, but they understood that when a mountain is far away, it looks small. As you get closer, it looks bigger. And they knew that stars were far away. They look small and they're bigger. They may not have known the expanse of them. But when you think about stars, I did a lot of reading on this. If the distance from the Earth to the Sun, 93 million miles, were one sheet of paper, in order to get to the next closest star, you would have to stack up 70 feet of paper. That's the ratio of the distance from our Sun to the next closest star. If you were trying to get to the closest galaxy, again, distance from Earth to star, 93 million miles, is represented by the thickness of one sheet of paper, you would have, I think it's a 350 mile tall stack of papers to represent the distance to the next closest galaxy. So the universe is vast, and it says God is moving this with his fingers. It doesn't say with his arm, it doesn't say with his hands even, it says with his fingers. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't do a lot of work with my fingers. If I'm doing something with my fingers, it's, I'm working on precision. And if you look at the world we live in, where everything is, the precision of where 
stars and planets are located is exceedingly precise. As you look at the fact that if you go to another planet in our solar system, it'd be almost impossible to live on that planet. You couldn't without aid. You couldn't just go stand on Mars and make ice cream there, even if cartoons tell you otherwise. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't go to Venus and just exist. You, you would have to have some sort of help, some sort of suit to help you breathe. This is the precision with which our universe is created. It, it shows that God is an artist. God is pushing things around with his finger. He's not just like, push that couch over there. He is doing the precision work, which means, number one, he's big, and that he can move these stars. I, I'm sure some of you have seen these things when you, when you look at a human, and then you look at that human in relation to, like, the United States. And you look at the United States in relationship to the globe, and then the globe in relationship to the solar system, the solar system in relationship to the galaxy, and you see just how puny you are. Okay, and God is moving these vast things with his finger, so he is also an artist. So that leads us to the question, the question that we've been asking, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. I don't, I don't want to do this. I hate to do this. But I'm going to suggest that there would be a better word here. Uh, the word in the Hebrew is Elohim. I don't speak good Hebrew, so don't ask for a lot. And there's a reason why it's translated angels or, uh, or perhaps you have a translation that says heavenly beings. Uh, and the reason is because it's in the plural. I'll get to in a second why I think it's plural. But the word is, is Elohim. I think the best translation would be God. Thou hast made him a little lower than God and has crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, you say, well, you know, what's that about? I, I'm going to quote a TV show that none of you have seen. It's called Lie to Me. came out several years ago. wasn't exceedingly popular. And it's about these people that run a business. Uh, their business is detecting people who lie. They're like human lie detectors. It's kind of fascinating, but that's not important right now. The main character in this show is doing things that the people in his business, they want to have uh, an intervention. They talk to him. They're like, hey, you're not, you're not being loyal to us. You need to. And he looks at him and he says, when I was eight years old, my mom died. My dad was long gone. Terry Marsh's family took me in, even though there was no food and even less money. And they raised me. And then when I was older, a teenager, we got into a little bit of trouble with the law that concerns you. And the police were coming. And the only way for one of us to get out of it was for the other one to take the blame. He said, Terry took the blame for me. And he looked at me and he said, you have a gift. You need to use it. And so, and so his partner said, so Terry took the fall. And he said, yeah, it cost him three years of his life. He spent three years of his life in prison. And then he says, so anyone who wants to compete for my loyalty with Terry Marsh, it's not really a fair fight. And we look at that, we say, well, we can understand that. This guy took you in. His family raised you. He went to jail for three years for something you should have done. Why would he not be loyal to him? Now, just think. We have a God who created us, 
who sustains us. Remember the name he used at the beginning? I am, self-sustained. He is sustaining our being. He created an earth where he pushes things into place artistically with his fingers such that we are able to live, breathe, and have our being. And then, I think there's more, well, I know there's more to it, but if you go to Hebrews 2, again, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9, and see if this sounds a little familiar. Uh, But one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou made him, madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things of subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. When the author of Hebrews is writing this, he is saying that it's not just God the Father. I know a lot of times we try to balkanize the Trinity. The gift he gives us is not just life, breath, continuing that, but it's also the fact that he died for our sins. He took the punishment. He was suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he should taste death for all of us. The majestic God of the universe loved you and gave you glory and honor. Now, you say, well, what is that glory and honor? How is that play out? Well, go back to Psalm 8, which sounds a lot like the text we just read in Hebrews. Verse 6 says, That made us have, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. I, I don't know how many of you, probably very few, listened to the Good Friday service where we talked about, when I hear that phrase, put all things under his feet, the first image that comes to my mind is I'm sitting on a lazy boy, putting my feet up, watching TV, something like that. That's the first image that comes to my mind. But that is not the first image that would have come to the mind of these people. In the ancient Near East, it would, when they say put all things under his feet, their vision was like putting the foot on the throat. In, when Joshua led the Israelites to a victory, what they would do is they would take all the officers of the opposing army and they would put them on the ground and they would take their boots and put them on the neck of those enemies. That is what it means to put all things under his feet. It means to put the world, your piece of it, in subjection to you. The dominion of man is mandated. This isn't a new mandate. This is reiterating the mandate that he gave when he created the world. We're going to talk more about that in a second, but let's keep reading. Uh, Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field the fowls of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. Everything is under our feet. What does that mean? That means we shouldn't live in fear of the world. We should not let the fear, we should not let the world subject us. We are commanded to subject it. 
Now, some of you may go about in the world and you may see people. You may see people living in fear of the world. People who are not running their little portion of the globe like they're supposed to. You may see people out there participating in things where they do not subject the world. When God says, I have put all things under your feet, it is that you are to rule the world. We are his vice regents. We show the glory of God most in this situation by ruling our portion of the world, by taking control of the world, not living in fear of what the world has for us. We know it's a cursed world with death and disease and accidents that happen all the time. We know that. But we also know that God commanded that all things are to be put under our feet. We are to live in charge of our portion of the globe. So when we have dominion over the works of the hands and all things are put under our feet, we, you know, some people, some people, I don't know who these people might be, might be afraid of things like, I don't know, dogs. I don't know. Might be afraid of more legitimate things to be afraid of, like, I don't know, alligators or bears. But it is clear from the mandate here in Scripture that all of those things, the dignity that any of those things have, is at best secondary to the dignity of man. And I hope you see the parallel when he says he is vanquishing uh, the, his enemies through the praise of babies. He is running the world through the insignificance of us. Why does God need us? I mean, he doesn't need us. He could just rule the world himself. What does he need us for? Like, what are we adding to the equation? God's heart is so filled with love for us that he has us to rule the earth. Now, like I said, this is, this is not a new mandate. For those of you who have read Genesis 1, and you remember verse 27 where it says, God created us in the image of God, created he him, male and female he created them. And then verse 28, which most people don't read with it, this is... Because we are created, this is what we have. It says, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Wherever you are, wherever or however you're listening, you bear the image of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is the whole point of salvation. We have been redeemed. We have been saved from our sins we're to be conformed to the image of Jesus. The whole goal of the Christian life is to look more and more like Jesus. It's not just us. We have been commissioned by God to fill the earth, to multiply the grace and blessing of God into others' lives. This is our great commission. Go and lead more and more people to know Jesus, to be conformed into his image, so that the grace and blessing and the glory of God spread throughout the earth. That is what he's commanding us to do when he says you are to subdue the earth and all things are under your feet. So imagine with me, if you will, that Pastor Travis is out of town for a weekend. Can we imagine that? Okay. He chooses a completely inadequate, short, fat, white guy to preach for him. Keep imagining with me. Now, imagine that that guy preaches by going up and not talking about the life-changing gospel. He preaches by not talking about our role in this mandate. Has he really done what he's asked to do? Now, on the other hand, imagine what he should do. What should that man do? He should talk about the gospel. 
he should talk about how it changes everything in our lives. He should talk about what we are commanded to do as vice regents. Now, instead of imagining it's a preacher at one church, imagine it's the God of the universe. And he commands you to fill and subdue your portion of the globe. Now, quit imagining, because that is what you're commanded to do. That is what you have been commissioned to do. That is what you must do. And you say, why must I do that? Well, we're going to keep reading Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. David understood that the position of man in creation says far more about the glory of God than saying anything about the glory of man. Understanding it all should make us praise God, not man. For man's dominion over nature, wonderful though it is, takes second place to his calling as servant and worshiper, to whose very children the name of the Lord has been revealed. There are three wonderful and important truths about man in this psalm. And it's first, God made man. Second, God made man to be in, in a glorious way. And number three, God made man for a high and worthy calling and destiny. All of these principles are rooted in what God has made man. They do not exist, nor are they fulfilled from the plan or the work of man. That is why this glorious psalm about man is even more than that. It's a psalm about God. The most striking feature is its description of man and his place in the created order. But this psalm doesn't begin or end by talking about man. It begins and ends by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. He made us to have dominion by the word of creation. He made us kings unto God by his blood. His name shall be honored throughout all the earth. Spurgeon said, Even thou, you silly worm, shalt honor him when it shall appear what God hath done for thee, what lusts he hath mortified, and what graces he hath granted thee. When we look at the majesty of God and we see how majestic he is and then we realize that he has made us in his image to bear that image and to propagate him throughout the world by living as God lived, as one who has dominion over our area, not one who's afraid of the world, but one who's, who's conquering over it and one who is ruling it. And that is our call. And that's a wonderful call because it's, it's something that God doesn't need insignificant people like us to do, but yet he uses us. And that's where, if you were here earlier for Sunday school when we talked about the gospel changes us so much so that we know that nothing we do can make God love us less and nothing or can make God love us more and nothing we have done will make us lo him love us less. And this is our calling and this is where we are. Pray with me.